If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, We're delving into the history of modern Wales with Martin Johns, Professor of History at Swansea University. In the early 1800s, Welsh regions and culture were transformed by the Industrial Revolution. And over the following two centuries, the nation went through two world wars and grappled with its changing status within the United Kingdom. And by the turn of the 21st century, it was set on a path to devolution. Putting your questions on modern Wales to Martin is our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Our topic for today's Everything You Wanted to Know podcast episode is the history of modern Wales, and our expert is Professor Martin Jones of Swansea University, a historian of modern Wales and a popular culture in modern Britain. Martin has written books on Welsh identity and the relationship between Wales and England, and his current project is on education and the Anglicisation of 19th century Wales. Thanks so much for joining us, Martin. Thanks for having me. Great. And and as with previous episodes, the the format we're looking at today is uh, taking popular search queries around the subject, which is obviously modern Welsh history, and also some listener questions as well. Uh, We've had some really great ones. So thanks to everyone who submitted questions. And we will try to get through as much as we can on this very big topic in uh, the next uh, episode. And to start us off, we're, we're starting with a very general one to bring us into this period of Welsh history. There are lots of queries, Martin, about the industrialisation of Wales. So um, at the beginning of, of this this rapid industrialisation, what's the situation on, on what scale is it happening? Industrialisation is central to the Welsh story, the history of Wales. In, in some ways, Wales is the first industrial nation in the globe. And that's rooted in what lies underneath the Welsh soil. Uh, Wales was rich in iron ore and coal. And the two things went together. At the late, in the late 18th century, there's a real demand for iron, partly driven by war um, against France. You used iron to make cannons. Um, and Wales had the iron ore and it had the coal nearby, which you needed to melt the iron. Um, and that kickstarts the transformation of Wales from a rural agricultural place on the edge of the United Kingdom that in many ways nobody really took that much attention of. But suddenly Wales becomes economically important. It becomes one of the key centres of the iron industry in Britain. And as the 19th century progresses, coal starts to take over from iron as the, as the, major, um, as the major export, the major industry. Coal powered everything. Coal was, was the basis of, of modern life. It was the basis of the empire. It was the basis of industry. It powered steamships. It powered railways. Um, it powered energy. And Wales was lucky for the quality of its coal. Um, it burnt at a very high temperature um, and it also gave off little smoke. And that really mattered in shipping um, because if you're in a navy, you don't want 
your the smoke from your ships to be seen from far away and, and Welsh coal burnt with little smoke and that meant it was in real demand um, by navies across the world and the Royal Navy for a time would only sail um, on Welsh coal. So Wales becomes a real kind of industrial heartland, um, you know, one of the real centres of the Industrial Revolution and with that comes population growth. At the start of the 19th century, you know, there's not much more than half a million people living in Wales. Um, you know, a century later, uh, by the beginning of the 20th century, you're talking well over two million. Um, so massive population growth and small villages became towns. Um, if you look at the Ronda um, in South Wales, which was one of the key coal, coal producing areas in the 1850s, there's probably only about a thousand people living there. Um, but by 1911, um, there's 150,000 people. So towns are emerging from nothing. It's a frontier society in some ways. Um, and people did draw uh, parallels with the, with the Wild West in America, um, a place a little bit on the margins um, of, of rule and law and order. And because people spoke a different language there as well, it seemed literally an alien place uh, to English observers. Yes, well, I, I did want to ask about the the cultural distinctions at this stage, um, but pre and post this sort of rapid um, industrialization. I mean, how how culturally distinct at this time was Wales from England at the beginning of the period that we're talking about, and what occurred in in many of these communities as a result? I mean, people certainly in the nineteenth century felt Wales was different. Um, tourists turning up. Um, social investigators turning up. The Victorians were big ones for social investigating. Um, and they see Wales as a different place. But then again, when they visit the slums of Manchester or Birmingham, they also look on the working classes as, as, as alien, as almost like a different species. Um, so some of the things that said about how distinct the Welsh are are really about class. But nonetheless, they are framed in different ways. People do talk about the Welsh as a different race, um, they start talking about the Welsh as Celts, as, as hot-headed people, as emotional people, as short people. And, you know, a lot of the Victorian racial thinking um, that's applied across the empire is also applied to Wales, where the Welsh are seen as essentially just not as evolved or civilised um, as the English. But in many ways, the, the only real key difference, you know, if we're, if we're going to be objective about it, is language. Um you know, beyond the border communities, Welsh was the first language of the vast majority um, of the people of Wales. The middle classes, the upper classes spoke English, but the workers were Welsh monoglots. They only spoke, spoke Welsh. You know, they played in Welsh, they prayed in Welsh, they, they worked in Welsh. And that's what really struck people. You know, a corner of the British Isles um, where, you know, in the middle of the 19th century, probably more than half of the population didn't speak any English. Um, and that did make Wales different, even if the, the kind of lives people were living were no different really to rural communities or industrial communities in England. The fact that life was communicated and lived through a different language made Wales different and it made the Welsh feel different as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So what then um, is the sort of response or, or result of uh, this influx of of people coming to this this country, um, you know, what sort of, were there riots and unrest? We've got a question here about the Merthyr Rising of eighteen thirty one. What sort of tensions were at play there? So, what you've got in the early nineteenth century is communities that are growing very fast, that are growing too fast, really. So they don't have the public utilities, they don't have the resources, really. The towns are overcrowded. Um, you know, there's there's, there's bad sewage, there's bad public health, etc. So, you know, these are communities that are tinderboxes in, in, in some ways. Many of the jobs created in the iron and the coal industry are relatively well paid, but in a capitalist society, wages fluctuated really significantly. And when wages fall, then people become angry. And they become angry because their income's gone down and they're living in terrible conditions away from kind of the mainstream, if you like, of, 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 of British life. Um, and people rebel um, in, many, in many ways. Sometimes these are very, they have very specific grievances. There's the Rebecca riots in the 1840s where people were attacking toll gates to rip them down um, and burn them down because 
and people were being charged to use roads to get to their own farms. Um, so sometimes there are specific grievances. Um, in the Merthyr Rising, um, again, it's falling wages and the way debts are being administered in the town that sparks um, a full-scale revolt in some ways. The army is sent in. It's very unclear exactly what happens, but there is a, there's a battle, essentially, in the, in the middle of Merthyr Town Centre, um, and at least 16 people are, sh- are shot to death by the British Army. Um, in Newport, in 18, that's in 1831. In Newport, in 1839, Chartists march on the town of Newport, um, seemingly wanting to start a revolution. So in the shadow of the French Revolution, you know, a couple of decades or three decades beforehand, Wales seems an unruly place. They speak a different language. There are these incidents of political revolt. Um, they're a different race to the English in Victorian eyes. So Wales seemed a, a threatening and dangerous place. And the state wanted to essentially civilise the Welsh. And, and the, their, their thinking was the way to do that is to teach people English. Um, and you find in the middle of the 19th century a big push for education um, in, the 19th, in, in, in Wales. And that's partly driven by state interests. But of course... Welsh people are buying into it as well because education was a route to a better life and speaking English was a route to a better life. So although it seems that people were very proud to be Welsh and to speak Welsh, most people had a desire that their kids would be able to speak English um, because English was the language of the state. It was the language of law. It was the language of business, of prosperity. Um, One minister said in North Wales that his people, his parishioners looked around and they saw that anybody with a job that didn't break your back spoke English and they learned something from that. So you find a desire amongst people in the early 19th, in the mid 19th century to learn English and you do find a desire on the part of the state to teach people English. The people probably wanted to be bilingual, the state probably wanted Welsh to die out. Well, we've got a question about about um, that, exactly that very point. Um, Emily Rose Robinson, thanks Emily, has asked about the Welsh knot. And perhaps uh, you could explain what the knot was, is in, uh, and, you know, about what's known about its use and the intention there. So the Welsh knot is really symbolic in, in Welsh culture today. Um, you know, school children will be able to tell you about it. Um, and it's often held accountable for the decline in, in, in the Welsh language. Um, its actual history is, a, is complicated. Um, essentially, it's around, it's at its height in the early to the mid 19th century. And what it was, was a wooden board, not very big in most cases, just a few inches long. Um, and it was used in schools and the teacher would give it to a child heard speaking Welsh. Um, and then it, it almost gets turned into a bit of a game, but a but a, an insidious game where it's passed from child to child. So if you've got it and you hear one of your classmates speaking Welsh, you pass it to them. And then at the end of the day or at lunchtime, either the holder of the Welsh knot would be caned um, or in some schools, everybody who'd held it that day um, would be physically punished. So children are literally beaten for speaking the only language they know. The thinking behind this was this was the way you teach people English. It's almost like immersion, that you you throw them into the classroom and you only speak English to them and they'll pick it up. One person who experienced it said it was like teaching someone to, to swim by just throwing them in a river at the deep end and, and seeing what happened. But what it meant was that children were in school, they were being taught how to say English words, how to read English words, but if they asked what they meant they were punished for speaking their language. Now, good teachers knew this didn't work. And sensible teachers essentially might use it, but would also use Welsh to explain to children what was going on. But the really bad teachers literally spoke no Welsh in the classroom at all. And that meant that observers were saying, there are children in school, they can read words, but they don't know what they mean. They can read passages from the Bible because they've been taught how to say these words, but they have no idea what they're saying. So ironically, what happens is as the state gets more involved in education as the 19th century progresses, it starts putting pressure on teachers to use more Welsh in the classroom. 
So even though the state isn't interested in the Welsh language, it doesn't care about its future, it understands that the only way you can teach people who don't speak English to, to speak English is if they understand the words they're being taught. So Welsh is in, there's an encouragement of, of the use of Welsh in, in the classroom. So the Welsh knot is real, it's not a myth. Children were beaten for speaking the only language they knew, but it, it's decline, it, it declines as the 19th century goes on. It's still there at the right at the end of the 19th century in some schools, but in schools where the teachers were particularly old fashioned. It's certainly never government policy. Right, how interesting. So there's clearly um, a lot of things going on that is affecting uh, Wales and Welsh culture in this period. Um, I wonder if we could quickly for, um, we've obviously got a lot of listeners beyond Wales, beyond the UK. Um, could we talk about some of the, the regions of Wales that particularly benefited or, or were changed by this industrialisation as well? So you can loosely separate Wales into two regions, the kind of the upland regions of, of the West um, and the industrial um, the industrial regions of, of the south. Um, it's very loose. It's hard to do it without a map. Um, but essentially in, in the rural west, the southwest and the northwest, Wales is mountainous, it's agricultural, um, and there isn't a huge amount of industry there. But industry is taking people away because it's creating jobs and it's creating well-paid jobs. So there are people moving from the rural west into the south of Wales where coal and iron are. And what that means is the Welsh language initially is actually strengthened by industrialisation because these rural communities in the south, which become industrial urban communities, have an influx of Welsh speakers for them for, into them from the west. Um, so initially industrialisation strengthens um, the Welsh language. But as industrialisation grows through um, through the 19th century. By the end of the 19th century, the Welsh coal industry is so big that it is sucking in immigrants from England and, and from beyond as well. And what that means is that the language of communities in the South starts to change. Um, and it's all about numbers. You know, if you've got a handful of people moving into a village, which is Welsh speaking, as hap was happened in the middle of the 19th century, they'd learn Welsh. But as their numbers increases, then you start to see language and uh, start to see language change. Um, and as people are learning English in school um, and, you know, Welsh speakers are turned into people who are bilingual, those bilingual speak speakers increasingly use English because there are more and more people who can't speak Welsh who have moved in. And some of them start raising their children in English um, because there's a sense, well... Welsh is old-fashioned, it's not that useful in the modern world, the community's changing anyway, English is all around us. So by the end of the 19th century, by the 20th century, the industrial South is a mixed community. There are some people who only speak English, there are some people who are bilingual, and there's a handful of older people who only speak Welsh. But in the rural West and North, Wales is still solidly um, Welsh speaking, you know, most communities are over 80% Welsh speaking, some much higher than that. Um, and there are large chunks of people, even in the early 20th century, who don't speak English, um, you know, in, in Britain. Mm. Quite a change. And for um, another aspect of, of Welsh, Welsh culture, Nigel Dutson has asked um, about religion, which was obviously undergoing plenty of change at this time as well. Um, what's led, he asks, to the array of chapels that we see across Wales? Why, why are they so varied? And he mentions Tabernacle, Salem, Wesleyan, Baptist, etc. So Wales has um, a whole variety of non-conformist of non denominations. Now, you find them in England as well. But in Wales... Um, non-conformity, the chapel, is basically far more important than it is in most parts of England. And that's partly to do with the status and the nature of the church um, in Wales. Many of the vicars didn't live in their parishes. Um, in some parts of Wales, many of them didn't speak Welsh. And that meant going to church was an alien experience. You'd be listening to services in languages that you didn't, in a language you didn't understand. And that creates that that creates opportunities if you like for for the for the chapels so the chapels 
step in and, and offer people religious guidance, salvation, entertainment in a way that the church was failing. So chapels are successful and um, the church isn't. Um, and it was a route to, it was a route to social mobility as well. You know, they taught, whereas the schools were, were teaching English so badly, um, especially in the Welsh Knot era, ch- chapels and Sunday schools were teaching people to read in Welsh. Um, and that that gives people education. It allows people to kind of, to build careers for themselves. They're also, as I said, entertainment. You know, Welsh chapels were famous for the quality of their preaching. You went to chapel to learn and to be entertained and to be bombasted with these tales of God and sin. And they're often very judgmental places. Um, So they all have this common theme to them, you know, valuing the Welsh language, offering entertainment, offering community, being different to the church. So although on the surface, it seems like there are all these different denominations, Methodists, Baptists, um, the actual differences between them in many ways are relatively slight and often over quite trivial or what might to a modern eye seem quite trivial kind of scriptural scriptural issues. But what nonconformity does is give Wales status because it's another... You know, we talked before about what makes Wales different to England. We've got the language, but in the 19th century, we also had religion. And the Welsh felt they spoke a different language and they had a different religion um, to England. And that created a sense of difference and a creation, created a sense of nationhood. And it also helped save the Welsh language. Because in a world where English is the language of the state and of power and of money, and that's the language you need to speak to get on in life, But if you could speak to God in Welsh and if you can hear the word of God in Welsh, that meant Welsh wasn't useless. It gave it a status. And that's why most Welsh people, I think, they wanted to learn English, but that they didn't necessarily want to reject the Welsh language. Mm -hmm. Yes, that makes so much sense. Uh, and you mentioned it in in your last answer, and we don't actually have um, a listener question on this, but I'm going to um, throw it in anyway. Um, the the very rich tradition that I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with of um, of song of storytelling, it obviously goes back way beyond the period we're talking about here. But how do we see this? In what ways do we see that sort of manifesting in this period? Wales definitely in the 19th century has a reputation as a land of song, um, and that's partly linked. To, to the chapels, to the hymn-singing culture there. Um, it's also in some ways an image that the Welsh themselves like to play up, um, again, as a, as a way of saying we're different to the English. Um, but it is also linked to industrialization as well, because industrial communities were looking for entertainment. They were looking for the, th- the things that gave people kind of status and gave people a sense of their place in the world you know and if if you're a miner doing a dirty dangerous job where you know you're bossed around you know it, it, in some ways you're denied dignity in your life and religion gave you dignity but so did song um and it it gave people an emotional outlet it gave people an intellectual outlet as well because we're talking about in an era where if people have been denied a good education there are plenty of very clever people working in manual trades um, and song singing male voice choirs the harmonies the classical music tradition all of those things i think were, were really important in giving people um, as i said kind of dignity so i think i think music Although there are lots of cliches about Wales as a land of song, I think it genuinely did matter in, in communities. It gave people something that they didn't necessarily have in other spheres of life. Right. Uh, and, and another aspect that I wanted to ask about today is, is sport, which um, obviously plays a part and evolves in a lot of these industrial communities. In, in many ways, sport plays the same function as music. Um, it gives people status and dignity. And rather than being a kind of an intellectual outlet, it's a, it's a physical outlet, although there is an intellectual side to it in, in terms of tactics and betting um, on it. So I think it was really important in, in people's individual lives. It also helps bond these new communities together because if you've got towns that are growing very fast, that are sucking people in from other parts of Wales, from England and from further afield, what makes them proud to be 
a member of this town. And having a local rugby club or a local football club or a, or a famous local boxer, these were, these were symbols of civic identity that people could unite behind. And sport doesn't make any demand of you. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what class you are. Um, it's, it's symbolic. Um, and it allows people to kind of unite behind their town, but also their nation. Um, and, and here's one of the great historical accidents in, in some ways. Britain is the home of modern sport. It's where football and rugby are invented. And as England and Scotland start playing each other, Wales say, well, we want some of that. So, you know, a Welsh Football Association is formed, a Welsh Rugby, the Welsh Rugby Union is formed um, at a time when, you know, nobody, they're not playing any non-British teams. And what those, what those national football and rugby teams do is give people a symbol to unite behind and it it's an outlet of welshness and for those you know if you weren't really into religion um or you didn't speak welsh um or you know some of the other things that are going on at the time the kind of festivals these big musical festivals and festivals of poetry or being interested in welsh history all the other kind of symbols of welshness were there sport was just more accessible um and I think it is really important in helping a sense of Welshness survive in the 20th century. Because if we think about Wales in the 20th century, it doesn't have its own government. Um, the language is in decline. Um, it's looked down upon and patronised by the media in English and by English tourists. Um, in a world of cinema, and radio and television, there are all these cultural forces sort of eradicating, if you like, the cultural sense of difference in Wales um, and bringing English culture into Wales. So it's like, well, what keeps ordinary working class people feeling proud of being Welsh, especially if they don't speak Welsh? And sport was one of those things, particularly because at least in rugby in the early 20th century, Wales is really good at rugby. So it's not just you can watch a team that says we're a nation. You can watch a team that beats the English. You can watch a team that beats the New Zealand that beats the New Zealanders. It gives people not just a sense of being Welsh, but a sense of being a nation that is an equal partner to England. And it reminds the English that Wales exists, that Wales are a nation, not just this kind of weird regional culture on the edge. Right. And it feels that like that sentiment is uh, is very much alive and well these days, too. Absolutely. And it's continued to, to, to do that right up to the present day. Mm -hmm. uh, but fundamentally, historically, I'd argue that one of the reasons why Welsh identity remains so important and so powerful to many people it is a legacy of sport. We've got a question here about the Welsh national dress. Now, Hannah Thomas has asked where the tall Welsh hats for women come from. I remember wearing them at school myself when we dressed up on St David's Day. It, it, where did they come from? That's a really hard question to answer uh, because there just isn't really clear historical evidence. What What is clear is that in the early to mid-19th century, tourists to Wales start noticing it um, and start saying, oh, this is unusual. Um, and because, because outsiders are saying, well, this is one of the things that makes Wales different, it's almost like Wales starts to play up on that. And it seems, it is hard to say, but it seems that what happens is that a, what's a fashion, essentially, and nobody's thinking of it as a Welsh national costume. People aren't consciously dressing in a Welsh way in the early 19th century. But people start thinking of it that way as the century progresses. Um, it's not everybody wearing it, you know. It, it, it's probably relatively well-off farmers' wives. Um, but as the century progresses and photography comes in, it does seem that photographers had some costumes that you could go to the local photographer and be photographed in this. Um, and it, it becomes a symbol of Welshness. So as, as we talked about before, as, as the 19th century progresses and Wales is looking for ways to say, we're a culture, we're a nation, we're different to the English. Welsh, the idea of a Welsh national dress sort of evolves and, and it's a bit like the kilt in Scotland. It's not invented, but a kind of a traditional dress that probably was really not thought about and subconscious gets turned into a national symbol, gets commodified. Um, in some ways. But exactly where this fashion came from, I just don't think the historical evidence exists to answer that. Right. Well, it's so interesting, though. Another example of um, 
Wales and Welshness leaning into these points of difference and using it to define? Yeah, if you don't have a state, if you don't have a government, you know, you have to find other symbols to say we're a nation. And in the 19th century, Wales was looking for these symbols. Wales is a weird place in the 19th century. On the one hand, it's unconfident and it's nervous about itself and it's worried about its language and it's worried about being looked down upon by the English and it's desperate to learn English. But at the other, at another level, it's incredibly confident and patriotic and eager to show it's not English. They want to be like the English by speaking English, but at the same time, they want to make sure that they'd be seen as not being English. It's a kind of a paradox in some ways, but it certainly seems to be very strong in cultural trends. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. In the 20 years before the First World War, roughly about 400,000 people move into the South Wales coalfield looking for work. In the 20 years after the First World War, about the same number move out. Wales becomes a country that people are leaving. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So so how does this then play out um, as we uh, see through the late 19th century, early 20th century. How does this sort of manifest itself in terms of that rising sense of nationalism and politicisation of Welsh life? The First World War is really important because the First World War in some ways changes everything. At the beginning, the First World War kind of, it's a good way of assessing Wales' status. Um, Wales is very proud of its contribution to the war effort. Um, Welsh national symbols are used as recruiting tools Welsh language newspapers talk about fighting for the homeland, fighting for the empire. There's a definite sense that this is Wales's war as much as anybody's war. Um, But at the same time, there are tensions. Um, If you wanted to write home to your parents in Welsh, which was the only language that, that lots of people spoke, you weren't really supposed to do that. Officially, you were. You were allowed to. But because letters are censored, it depended upon having an officer who was willing to let it go or who could understand Welsh. So you have you have tensions over this. You know, the government is telling the Welsh people, you're part of this war, you're part of this fight. But at the same time, you can't write home to your mum and dad in the language you speak to them in. So tensions arise. But at the same time, the war is a real moment of pride for Wales, not least because in 1917, David Lloyd George, a Welsh speaker, from a humble background, the first kind of real person from outside the establishment in some ways to become British Prime Minister. Disraeli might argue with that, but, 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 you know, he's from a very humble background and he becomes Prime Minister. Someone who doesn't have English as a first language becomes Prime Minister of the United Kingdom at a time of crisis. And that shows, um, it shows the pride that existed within Wales um, in the way Lloyd George is celebrated, but it also shows that if you were willing to play the game, you could make it to the top. You know it. But what the First World War also does is destroy the Welsh economy, essentially. Um, the coal industry is turned upside down by it. Um, other markets, because Welsh coal was very export-driven, other countries across Europe and beyond start developing their own coal industry. They find different places to buy coal. And the 20s and 30s, the global depression, is, is catastrophic for Wales. In the 20 years before the First World War, Roughly about 400,000 people move into the South Wales coalfield looking for work. In the 20 years after the First World War, about the same number move out. Wales becomes a country that people are leaving. And that creates a fear um, in Wales about its, its status and its economic future. And it creates a weak economy that we're still living with today. You know, coal mining communities have not found a new economic purpose since the decline of the coal industry. Um, And that decline didn't happen with Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. It began straight after the First World War. Um, So Wales is a post-industrial nation today. 
And that economic problem begins in the 1920s. So the First World War takes a confident nation and kills its confidence in, in so many ways. And from that, you start to see, well, what's the solution? For some people, it's communism. For more people, it's socialism. But for a small number of people, it's nationalism and moving away from the United Kingdom, maybe full independence, maybe renegotiating what it means. Because many of those people moving away were Welsh speakers. And suddenly in the 20s and 30s, there is real concern that the Welsh language might die out. And that really feeds Welsh nationalism. Um, And in the early days, Welsh nationalism is very much driven by a desire to save the Welsh language. So the middle of the 20th century, Wales changes. Uh, It loses its confidence. It worries about the future and it worries about the Welsh language. Mm. And what are the parties that evolve and and emerge to to sort of um, take up this cause? So Plaid Cymru, the Welsh National Party, are founded in 1925. Um, To be honest, they're they're not a big force between the wars. Um, In the late 30s, there's a a famous case where three of their founding members um, burned down a bombing school in Penaberth. Um, in, in North Wales, um, and they tried for arson, um, and they did do it. Um, but but the Crown Court in Carnarvon doesn't reach uh, doesn't reach a, a verdict, so the case is moved to London, and that sparks outrage. You know, okay, we don't, most people didn't agree with what they did, but it's our right to try them. You know, they did it in Wales; they're Welsh speakers, um, and when the case is moved to London, it kind of It's almost taken as a national insult that the Welsh aren't fair enough to try their own people. And in many ways, that sets a pattern for the rest of the 20th century, that there are these little moments of outrage where somehow Wales isn't being treated fairly or or equally by English government, by government from London. Um, And the Penaberth arson case is, is the first of that. But it also shows people... Actually, maybe the only way to get noticed is through breaking the law. Um, and it creates a tradition within Welsh nationalism um, that, that non-violent direct action is a way to get things done. And, and that continues. In the 1960s, young people, students in particular, are painting out road signs. They're committing crimes in order to get arrested. Um, and then they're refusing their summons because the summons would only r- arrive in English. So people are protesting um, as a way of promoting language rights. Um, so there's a, there's a trend of using, of breaking the law in order to promote Welsh cases. And Wel- Welsh nationalism zooms in on moments where it looks like government is treating Wales badly. Mm. Well, one of those moments, without wishing to skip ahead too much, because I do want to talk about the Second World War as well, but um, one of those moments, uh, the, the drowning of Capel Kellen, we've had a question about that. What can you tell our listeners about that event and its legacy, well, into the 21st century, really? It, 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 it's huge. I mean, hist- 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 historians reduce history to kind of moments, partly because it's an easy way of telling the story. But sometimes there are moments that genuinely seem to change things. And, and the drowning of Capel Kellyn is one of those. So in the 1950s, Liverpool, an expanding city in England, but not that far from Wales, is looking for new sources of water. Um, it, looks to Eng- it looks to Wales, to the mountains, they're not far away, and it identifies a site in the Trewerin Valley. Um, and essentially it tries to push through a compulsory purchase of that valley and in that valley was a small village called Capel Kellyn, which was Welsh-speaking. Um, probably only 40-odd people lived there. It's not a big place. Um, but people were angry. They were losing their homes in order to create a reservoir for England. And the media pick up on this, and Welsh nationalists pick up on this. Um, and it's, it creates a debate about, is this fair that a Welsh-speaking community, and we're all worried about the future of the Welsh language, and we're here, you are destroying a Welsh-speaking community in order to basically create a reservoir for England. And what happens is this has to, this requires legislation, it requires an act of parliament, and every single Welsh MP except one votes against it. But it still goes through. 
because there are more English MPs than there are Welsh MPs. And that becomes a symbolic moment because what it says is, on paper, we're an equal part of the United Kingdom. We're a democracy. But when Welsh interests and English interests collide, England will always win because there are more English votes in Parliament than there are Welsh votes in Parliament. So it, it, it becomes a moment that reminds people, it becomes a symbol of Welsh powerlessness um, within the way the United Kingdom works. And, and right up to the present day, people use the slogan, Cofiwch Trwerin, remember Trwerin. And what you're being asked to remember is not necessarily the 40 people who lost their homes and were forced to relocate. You're being asked to remember the symbolism of this that Wales is badly governed by England and that English interests will always triumph. And that raises the question, how do we change that? And ultimately, people would argue the only way to change that is through independence. Mm -hmm. Yes, those those murals are are popping up and uh, uh, there's a fair few of them these days as well. Uh, And if I can ask a bit more about the symbolism that sort of emerges in this sort of period, am I right in saying the red dragons around this time as well? Yeah, so the, the Welsh, the red dragon is is a it's a very old symbol for Wales. You know, going back to to the medieval period, um, the Welsh flag doesn't have any official status um, for most of this period because Wales isn't a nation in any official way. But as as people are getting angrier about the fortunes of Wales and about the, the future of the Welsh language and about things like um, Trwerin. The government are looking to make concessions, essentially. They're looking to do almost symbolic things as a way of keeping the Welsh happy and say, of course we care about you, of course we think about you. So in 1955, Cardiff is made the capital city of Wales. Um, And in 1959, the Red Dragon is recognised as the official flag of Wales. Everybody thought it already was, but it's just an official statement. It makes no difference in practical terms. Um, And there's, there's a series of these actions by government in the 50s and 60s as a way of saying we recognise Welsh interest. Um, And they're partly genuine. They are partly genuinely trying to help Wales. But underlying them is a fear that if Welsh anger grows, nationalism will grow and there will be a strong movement to maybe break away from the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I I did skip us ahead a bit there to the the mid-20th century. Um, but if we can go back a few decades, uh, I wanted to ask as well about how Wales was affected by World War II and particularly on the home front as well. What was happening there? In many ways, the Welsh experience is no different to anywhere else in the United Kingdom. It experiences bombing, rationing, um, conscription, you know, all the common tropes, the common ideas, the common experiences of the home front are there in Wales. Um, it's a moment when British propaganda is probably at its height. Um, you know, the state is making an effort to to tell people to fight for their country. But that always raised the question of what country? When you see a post that says fight for your country, which country is that? Is that Britain or is that Wales? And given that the English aren't always very good at remembering that England and Britain aren't the same thing, BBC commentators would sometimes say on the wireless, England is doing this or... And it would exhort people to fight for England. And the government was telling, them, telling the BBC, don't say England when you mean Britain. But it would annoy readers. Churchill made a speech recognising all the different nations of the empire. And he didn't mention Wales. And that upset people. Um, and you have the same problem you had in the First World War, where sometimes the army is stopping people writing home in Welsh, even though they were supposed to be allowed to. Um, so even though at many levels it's a it's, it's a moment of Britishness, you know, when the state has a real impact on people's lives, where there is more movement of people, evacuees, um, kids from English cities are moving into rural Wales to escape the bombing. So in many ways, the countries are coming closer together. But that in itself creates a debate about what does this mean? You know, are we being forgotten here? So... And the propaganda encourages that as well, because the films of the era are often, you can almost like tick off the different characters. There's the cheeky Northern lass, there's the Welsh character, there's the Scottish one. Um, so Welsh figures are more prominent in some ways in, in the media. So it's, it's, it's a paradox. Britain, Britishness is intensifying, but that in itself makes people ask questions about Welshness. And after the war, 
as decolonization begins and countries like India start getting their freedom, a few, not many, but a few people start in Wales start saying, well, what about us? Should we be thinking mm. about this? So again, you know, it's a gradual picture of people asking political questions about Welshness. And if there's this, obviously, this this sentiment, um, growing, emerging sentiment that Wales is being overlooked, it's, you know, obviously got long roots. Um, there, there are some uh, figures making noise for Wales on a global stage and bringing Wales, uh, you know, British global attention. Um, we've got a question here from Yam FJ, who's asked about popular Welsh figures of the 20th century. I mean, I know it's hard to reduce this history down to such things, but can you give us a, a sense of who were kind of popular figures of this this sort of period? I mean, Lloyd George is, is, is clearly the most important Welshman of this of this era, simply because he's, you know, he's running the empire essentially at one point. Um, and Nyron Bevan is incredibly important as well, uh, founder of the National Health Service, you know, one of the key ministers of that Labour government, um, elected in 1945. He was very proud of being Welsh, but at the same time, he didn't think there was any point governing Wales differently to England. Um, and, you know, he's quite hostile um, in some ways to the idea that there should be Welsh political institutions. You know, he's a, he's a believer in, in, in class. And for him, the interests of the working class in Wales and England were no different. Um, Jim Griffiths is another one. He was another minister in that same government. He introduced the National Assurance Act and later becomes uh, Minister for the Colonies. He's really important. And, and both of those two figures have real impacts upon British politics. But in some ways, they're the last Welsh figures to have really central impacts on, 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 on Welsh politics. And that's part of the reason why maybe that kind of Welsh nationalism has grown. Um, you know, th there have been fewer Welsh figures at the heart of British politics. And that's partly because the dominance of the Conservative Party, certainly in the last, you know, 50 odd years. Um, the Conservatives have always been traditionally weak in Wales, because they've partly been seen as an English party, the party of the of the upper classes. Um, they've been labelled as anti-Welsh in many ways. So without a succession of strong Labour governments, there hasn't necessarily been the route for Welsh politicians to make it uh, to make it to the top. And that again, I kind of I think has fed this idea that Wales is marginalised within British politics. There are cultural figures, Shirley Bassey, Tom Jones, that are, you know make a genuine international splash and are proud of being Welsh and talk about their Welshness. Um, and they've been important as well in telling the world that Wales exists um, and giving people pride. And we go back to what we said about the 19th century. In a world where you don't have a state, in a world where you're looked down upon by your neighbour next door, you, know, you, you jump onto things that make you feel good about yourself. And, and some of these kind of sportsmen, musical figures, they are really celebrated in Wales as not just a celebration of their achievements, but as a celebration of Welsh nationhood. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And um, and going back to Lloyd George, you've mentioned his his impact. He obviously is a figure of empire within the British Empire. And and we've got a great question here, I think, from Adol Geith. Um, what balance, they ask, should be struck in understanding a Wales history as a colonised country and a country of colonisers? I mean, it's both. I mean, I mean, it does partly talk about when, it does partly depend upon when we're talking about. I mean, I think if you go back to the medieval period, I, I don't think you can describe Wales as anything but a colony of England. Um, you know, Wales was militarily conquered. Um, laws were enforced that denied the Welsh um, various civil rights um, within their own nation. Um, it's difficult to describe medieval Wales after conquest as anything but a colony. Then, you know, in the Tudor period, Wales is legally merged with England. It's, it's annexed, it's assimilated. And while that in one level was a terrible thing because it didn't recognise Welsh nationality, it, it gave the Welsh equal rights with the English. And if you have full equal rights, if you have representation in Parliament, if, if one of you can actually make it to running that Parliament as Prime Minister, I think it's hard to describe Wales as a colony in the modern in, in the modern period. It's certainly looked down upon, it's certainly patronised, it's certainly not treated or thought of as an equal partner by the English a lot of the time. But in practical terms, you know, Welsh people could make it to the top. But it's, it's little things like the fact that the language of the courts until 1940, until the 1940s was English. Now, 
you know, so if you're being tried, um, you're being tried in a system by a language that you don't necessarily speak very well. Um, now, yes, you can use interpreters and things like that, but that that can create problems with the judge. Um, you know, there was one there was one case where a, a, a man, one of the reporters, said, "You know, I sat there watching this guy listen to his death sentence be read out by the judge, and he didn't know what the sentence was. He had to wait for the translator." So, it's not a colony, but if you don't speak the language of the state it's hard to describe yourself as an equal partner. But Wales was certainly involved in the British Empire in pretty much every way. Wales was certainly proud of being part of the empire. Um, It thought of it as its empire as much as England's empire. You know, it was the British Empire, not the English Empire. Welsh people were there as administrators, which again shows, you know, my earlier point that you could make it to the top. They're there as soldiers, they're there as missionaries, they're there as settlers. They're there in every part of the empire doing everything that the English did on a much smaller scale, obviously, because there are fewer of them. But they did think of themselves as doing it slightly different. And you do find in the 19th century people saying the Welsh do imperialism differently. They didn't use that word. but um, And that's because of their experience of being colonised. So they're, they're more understanding of native rights. They're more understanding of the importance of language. They treat the people that they're ruling over kinder than the English people do. In many ways, that's just a rhetoric. It's another way of saying we're different to the English, we're better than the English. Um, So the Welsh are fully complicit in all the crimes of the British Empire. You know, they they shared fewer of the rewards uh, just because of the nature of the class system. Um, But Wales certainly cannot escape its, its history um, of playing a key role or playing a role in the colonization of a huge chunk of the, of the globe. Okay, so um, moving back then from this deeply entwined history, um, back to the mid-20th century as we were talking about, it, this, th- these movements, this sentiment, it, you know, it's put Wales on a path towards devolution in the late 20th century. There are huge changes that happen in the 1970s and 80s. What's what's going on there? Yeah, so essentially what happens is, you know, from, from Trewerin in the 50s and the 60s, the Welsh language movement in the 1960s, and many of these things were focused about, around language rights. Um, in the 70s, as the economy gets even worse, um, then some of these kind of questions, some of these questions about how to govern Wales start moving from been in many ways associated with the language to being about, well, how can we rescue the Welsh economy? And Welsh nationalism becomes far more interested in economic questions in the 70s. But the global recession of the 1970s is so deep, most people still see the answer as lying with the Labour Party and socialism. Um, But in the 1980s, again, it's the same thing with Trewellyn. Wales has three consecutive Conservative governments under Margaret Thatcher, which it didn't vote for. And it brings up the old arguments. Ultimately, English English votes will always outcount Welsh votes. Um, And as the industrial problems of Wales deepen, it starts raising further questions. And we're still talking about a minority of people. But nonetheless, people start debating, should we do things differently? In 1979, really led by what was happening in Scotland, there was, Wales was offered a referendum on devolution. Should Wales have its own parliament? The first time Wales would have self-government or a form of self-government really since the 13th century. And Wales votes no, because it's not sure it can afford it. It's worried about, oh, English speakers are worried that Welsh speakers will, will run them. People in the north are, are worried that they'll, they'll be ignored by people in Cardiff. Um, and essentially there's a commitment to kind of the Labour Party in socialism across Britain. So Wales votes no. Thatcherism reopens that debate again. And when Labour re-elected in 97, Tony Blair's government offers another referendum. And Wales votes yes, only just. It's a 50% turnout. The majority is only about 7,000 votes, which means that basically one in four people um, in Wales voted for devolution. But given how resoundly Wales had rejected devolution in 1979, it's a big change. And once you have devolution, it shows people, well, we can govern Wales differently. And once you have essentially a Welsh parliament, then called the Welsh Assembly, its members are looking for more powers because they want to do things. 
Um, and it's almost like once you've opened the door, you, you can't really close it. So in both Scotland and Wales, devolution starts a process which inevitably leads to more discussion of the possibility of independence. It's still a minority feeling. Opinion polls, you know, maybe put it at a quarter to a third of Welsh people willing to vote for it. Um, but those numbers are phenomenal compared to where we were uh, where we were 20 years ago. So I don't think it's inevitable, Welsh independence. But something's happened and you can trace it has long historical roots. It began with wanting recognition and wanting equal status with England in the 19th century. As that didn't always happen, as the economy failed, people started increasingly saying, maybe we need to take things into our own hands. Right. Well, we've we've covered um, a huge amount in uh, of two centuries of history, of touchstones of um, important history in this episode so far. Um, and if we can perhaps... Uh, I can put to you two very big listener questions to to round us off. Um, so we've got one from Soraya, um, who has asked, what event from the past do you think defines Wales as a country up until up to today? Um, I, I, I think devolution is really, is the establishment of the Welsh Assembly in 97 it, it, is really fundamental because it is... It is the outcome of a long historical process where people were discussing this, but it changed. It, it changed everything in so many ways. Before 97, devolution was controversial. People argued about, is it right the health service should be run from Wales? Now it's devolution is remarkably uncontroversial. The idea that decisions about Wales should be taken in Wales is seen as common sense by most people. I think it's given Welshness a confidence and it's created Welsh citizenship. So instead of Welshness being dependent upon sport or language or kind of vague cultural ideas, you're now a citizen of Wales if you live here because we have a Welsh parliament. It doesn't matter where you're from, what colour you are, what class you are, what language you speak. It doesn't matter how long you've lived here. Welsh citizenship exists now. It's made, it's made Wales a real nation in some ways. Um, so I'm sure many people would argue we were a real nation before devolution, but it... it it's established that Wales has grown up. There's still a long way to go, but it's changed Wales in, in ways that 40 years ago were, were almost unimaginable. Right. And um, to wrap us up, I know we've touched on this uh, many times throughout this this episode in terms of points of difference and, and uh, that definition, but Rian Thomas has asked how about Wales's relationship with England. How can we characterise or contextualise that relationship and how it has changed over the years we've been talking about today? I mean, it has changed a lot. You know, if we look at the grand scheme of things, if we go back to the medieval period. Um, I mean, one thing, although the nuances and, and the exact relationships changed according to what time period we're talking about, one thing maybe that defines it is England always matters to Wales. You know, we're a small nation, you know, there's three million people here. England's got a population of what, fifty something million. Um, Wales is the England is the only country that we have a land border with. Um, the border isn't even very clear. You know, it it's it's um, you know, it cuts through communities. And power still, despite this this the existence of the Welsh Parliament, power still resides in London. So, what England does matters. It matters to our economy. Um, it matters to the to the decisions our parliament can make. It matters to people's family lives. COVID has brought a lot of this out. It suddenly made people aware. Of, you know, there are different health regulations in in Wales and England. But people compare the Welsh regulations to the English regulations. You know, in both positive ways and in negative ways. So I think it, the ultimate characterization is that it's a relationship that matters, and in a small nation that is culturally and economically and to some extent politically assimilated um, with England or intertwined with England at least, it's inevitable. And even if Wales was a fully independent nation, its single most important relationship would always be England. Would always be England. You know, the Welsh will always judge how things are going against England. England doesn't care or notice Wales most of the time. You know, I'd say that's the definition of England's relationship with Wales, that it's just not really noticed it. We're too small. 
Um, you know, we haven't been oppressed. We've been forgotten most of the time. Um, but for the Welsh, England is the, is the key relationship. Okay, well, I feel like we could do an entire other episode on on that final answer, to be honest. But uh, um, I think we've, like I say, we've covered so many uh, touchstones that I hope people will uh, go and read a bit more about. Uh, Martin, can you say any other sort of resources or about your own uh, writing that you'd like to mention at this point that people can dive into a bit more? Um, I wrote a short book called Wales, England's Colony? Question mark, which was meant to be kind of summing up the whole history of Wales and its relationship with England. That's a good pe- place to start. It was also turned into a, a BBC series, which um, you can find on YouTube. Uh, yeah, so Wales, England's Colony? Question mark. That's probably a good place to, to start. Okay, wonderful stuff. Well, um, thank you so much, Martin, for all your answers today. It's been really fascinating, and uh, thank you for your time in joining us on the History Extra podcast. Jachvar. Jachvar. That was Professor Martin Johns. Martin's also written an article on the changing nature of Welsh identity for our website. You can read more at historyextra.com forward slash Welsh hyphen identity. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for an episode on the cruelty of Oliver Cromwell.